Hey listeners, welcome to another episode, our 10th episode actually. Hey guys, Ooh. we made it to 10. Yay! And uh, no, no signs of us shutting up. Uh, I'm Chris, <laughs> I'm here with Liza. Hey Liza. Hey. And Philip. Hey Philip. Hey y'all, what's going on? Alright, so this episode we will talk about the new uh, Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, supplemented by uh, an old French film from the 90s called La Haine. But, you know, before we get to that, as we always do, we'll recap this week with stuff that's been going on. And Eliza, you had, uh, there's a tweet that really interested you uh, regarding Steven Yoon. And uh, it was somebody who just who just quoted something he'd said, I think, uh, years ago when he made Burning about how it was like the first movie that essentially liberated him as an actor. Uh, his movie, Minari, is coming out. And he's getting some Oscar buzz. So, Liza, why don't you just uh, give us more of your thoughts on this? Yeah. uh, Why don't I just sum up the tweet? Basically, he just said that um, he felt very very free to to work in Korea where he was not bounded by white gaze and uh, the pressure of good representation. And, um, yeah, I, I would say that it's what I've been getting at since episode one of this podcast. You know, Asian American media is in such a sorry state because, <laughs> I mean, the whole space never existed before. And uh, I don't even know why, because there was a point in time where martial arts, uh, Asian martial arts was just exploding on the global scene, especially here in the U.S. But the assimilationist crowd has done everything that they could do to distance themselves from what they consider um, a negative trope, you know, I'm learning that to the, I'm learning now that what to them, a trope is just something that is like purely Asian, like having an accent, um, doing Asian martial arts. um, I don't know if it's, if it's something white, then it's not, it's not a trope. It's like actually very welcomed. Yeah, it's like anything that distinguishes you from the white middle class. Mm-hmm. That and is like, considered a trope. Um, like anime has always existed. J-pop went through a huge, um, I don't know, they, they had like their moment in pop culture, like in the 90s and the early 2000s. But we basically just went through years of non-existence in the media. And I absolutely put plenty of blame on Asian Americans themselves. Like they wanted so bad for like good representation, good meaning they want to be portrayed the same as whites and to be part of the dominant culture for so long that they never bothered to create anything for themselves. So instead of embracing the culture that our homelands produced and that so many of us brought over here with them, they just wanted to be like dumb jocks and prom queens. <laughs> this is this is like I this mean, is like it's almost true. Uh, like they want to no, be like true. Yeah. you know they want to be like the frat guy. They want to be like the stupid jock. They want to be like the kid that sucks at math. Uh-huh. <laughs> they want to be like um, I don't know. They want to be like uh, God. I don't know. I don't even know what girls want. I guess they just oh, the hipster is, girl. Is this the, like hipster a, girl? But yeah. Is this yeah. like a strictly yeah. like millennial Asian American phenomenon? Because I feel like these days, if you look at oh no no no, I think it goes. I, I think if anything, the, the younger you go the less you're likely to be afflicted by this. So millennials yeah, got it bad. And the older millennials got it especially bad. Gen X, even worse. I don't even want to think about like baby boomers. Um, if, if, you know, such 
I don't even know Asian American baby boomers can even exist because if you're that age, you're probably an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're so, probably, they're, yeah, they're one. They were one G, right? But I'm saying like now, if you look like now that Asia is cool, now that like you know things like you know movies like uh, Parasite are winning the Oscars and whatnot, people are starting to embrace the Asian Asian side of things True, rather than yeah. try to make this Asian American, you know, yeah. uh, mishmash of uh, bad media. Yeah, um, but it's also, I think some people are much more genuine about it than others. Like, for instance, I, I think, uh, especially in like, you know, YA books, there's like a lot of books that are trying to grasp onto the whole K-pop thing. And <laughs> oh, yeah. some of it just, you know, it's like, it feels very, you know, Johnny Come Lately kind of thing. <laughs> um, so it's like, okay, I, it's better than nothing, but uh, it doesn't feel particularly genuine. Uh, speaking of Steven Yoon, um, I just realized that he would never have these opportunities if he wasn't at least passably fluent in Korean, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, he, even for like mm-hmm. a non-fluent person like me, something he sounds a little stilted. But he just he, when I watched Burning, I was quite impressed. He was like pretty good. He's like way better than say Daniel Day Kim and Lost, whose uh, Korean was notoriously bad, like almost like unintelligible. <laughs> um, and I just realized for every like Korean parent who um, always instilled in their kids, oh, you got to learn Korean because. Uh, you know, you'll have these X, Y, Z advantages like my parents. Steven Yoon can now become the, the idol for that thing. Yeah. Like, hey, like especially if he wins an Oscar. Because you know what? Uh, telling kids, oh, you should speak Korean so, you know, you can talk to me in Korean or something. Mm-hmm. Not the biggest incentive, you know, for like an uh, mm-hmm. Asian American kid growing up. But if you say, hey, uh, you can, you know, want Steven Yoon an Oscar. I think that's a, See, that's a it, it, But it's going in draw. the opposite direction, right? Like... He is getting these opportunities in Korea more than he's, and, and those are those, like people have such an appetite and a demand for South Korean cinema. Yeah, and, and media so, in like, general. Right. So I was going to say that, like, now that we've entered the 21st century, which everyone has been referring to as the Asian century, like they're not referring to Asian America. They are referring. Mm-hmm. They're referring to Asia itself. You know, Asian pop culture is what's. Um, exploded into the mainstream. Nobody wants to watch Asian American stuff, you know? Nobody's and, and- really interested in anything that, um, like, I would say that the Asian American experience is like, it's talked about a lot, but I don't know. I, I what, feel what like. Is, what it, is Asian American stuff? Is it like Crazy Rich Asians, The Farewell, like that stuff? Like, what do you. But, what but do you even a- Crazy Rich Asians is based on Kevin Kwan's Singapore experience. So I would say that's. Much oh, more Asian than Asian American. I don't know because it's an Asian American in Asia. It's a fish out of water story, mm-hmm. right? But it's like it, it, it's still set in Asia. the The culture that you get to explore is Asian as opposed mm-hmm. to Asian American. So I would say it leans heavily much more Asian. Well, who would um, they because, even market any Asian American content to? Because well, that's, it's that's like, the question, right? Like Asian Americans don't seem to want it. All they do is criticize it. And uh, I think it's like embarrassing for us to look at it. And then when people outside of America watch American content, they just want to see black and white people. You know, like if they want to watch Asian people, they have content that comes from their own country. Like Parasite's popularity is in large part because there is this huge demand for South Korean cinema. Same with K-drama. So Asian Americans are like stuck in this no man's land Nobody wants it. Nobody knows how to market it. There's nobody to market it to. 
And the audience that actually wants Asian American content, if they're out there, I think it's just too small for anyone to care about. But but it's not strictly a, a size of market argument, right? Like it's not just like oh, this, it's, this... it's unable to define it. Like we can't even define it. Well, well it's always it's... like some sort of watered down, hyphenated version of someone else's, some other culture's content. Yeah, and I think that is the the hope we can cling to is that it it sucks because it's never been tried before. Because to concede that, um, well, you know, uh, America's either white or black, Asia's Asia, Asian Americans can never out white or out black people, Mm-mm. the actual white or black people. We can certainly never out Asian Asians, no matter how well attuned to our you know ancestral homelands we are. So um, if if we just concede that, that means the the assimilationists are totally right. Uh, might as well just just you know discard most things about Asian America except what other people find marketable about us and just, you know, let ourselves be um, absorbed into the mainstream. It's so very fatalistic. St- right. <laughs> and I, I think it's rather depressing. So I would, my stance is it's a, like a distinct Asian American uh, thing has never really been tried. So let's try it um, because, hey, uh, we, we already know the other stuff that we've done before has not been working. So that that's my stance because otherwise it, it does mean like that Asian Americans are just a totally insignificant group. So we might as well just you know go along to get along, which I don't so, think is. A so good what does that look like? Like is that just, does that look like like making smaller art house films? Like stop trying to be the Asian Avengers. We already got the guy anyway. So like I mean, what possibly? That- yeah, I mean I think I think Minari is is a very Asian American film because mm-hmm. it's made by an Asian American. I mean, it is an immigrant story, so I think um, it's it's not quite the like second generation or even third generation thing that I'd be very interested in to see what we can do. Oh, but see. it is it is distinctly Asian American in a way that something like the farewell is not, because the farewell still relies on the crutch of going to China and and people being you, fascinated. You're, you're by asking that. about you're asking about a, a good second gen story, right? Like, let's say, frankly, in love, the YA novel got made into a movie. Is that what you kind of mean? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Like, see how see how real you can get with that, and mm. how distinct it would be from just like a white equivalent story. Um, I don't think we've seen a lot of that. Uh, so well, we we did an episode about Better Luck Tomorrow and uh, Soul Searching. Like, does that kind of count or not really? I think I think Better Luck Tomorrow counts. Soul Searching is a little bit different because it again it's set in Asia. Yeah. So I'd like to see what we can do while staying in America and not having to rely on on asia because you know asia is so interesting on its own uh mm-hmm. that i think we should wean ourselves off of that and just see what <laughs> it's see like what it's a crutch do. right it's like a crutch because you you get you, you know the, yeah, the, you the inherit trouble, so much the trouble yeah. is making asian americans interesting the thing is that asian americans are in asia asia itself is already interesting so you, exactly yeah, you, yeah. you get that free the freebie right yeah yeah liza do you think that they should just stop making asian american films in in the <laughs> states here is that is that what you're asking for <laughs> No, I, I'm just, I'm asking the question, what would it look like and how can it possibly be good? Yeah. I mean, that's just th- my own personal preference is that I don't like you. I don't even like looking at it. I am also very embarrassed by what it, what, what is produced. You know, I think mm-hmm. that there are some really great filmmakers out there. Uh, I am looking forward to Steven's um, new movie. When does it come out again? November 24th. I know uh, it's been think- out. It, it premiered at Sundance. Um, earlier this year in January, but when is yeah. it going to be released to the public so we can all see it? I know that he is like, there is Oscar buzz around Stephen um, 
UN about uh, best actor mm-hmm. for for his new film. And I mean, that means it has to come out like at least before Christmas. When I looked it up, it said November 20th, but I could not find out any information on which like streaming service coming out, which could mean it's just released on like, you know, iTunes or, or Amazon. And Maybe. that just goes without saying. So it's like that. So you just have to but rent the, it. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, uh, going down to uh, other things. Uh, and we, we had the whole like Jeffrey Tubin Zoom dick thing, but it's already, I think it's already old news. I don't know what's left to say. I just want to say it was weird that some blue checks like uh, German Lopez and, and Connor Friedendorf <laughs> were defending it. And I think it was, it was a, a German who actually said like, come on, like, let, let's not, let's not attack him for something we've all done before. And people are like, whoa, 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 hold up, man. Like, what do you mean we've all done this before? Uh, which, you know, <laughs> Zoom fa- in Tubin. Yeah, what happened in the video? I didn't even see it. Uh, apparently, he was. I never off. saw anything. Oh my god! I didn't see it. I, I like. I, thankfully, I don't think that like, footage is out there. Like we see his dick and everything. Like well, he's they like saw it. Like tugging, or do you just no, like well, that, you can just tell what that's what he's doing? No, I think it was full on visible, which is why he got you know, in like, like so much trouble. Because <laughs> you know, like that one viral video on like there's like this one viral video that was going around on Twitter where the guy like. He thinks that his camera's turned off, but he gets up and he gets like the paper towels and the lotion. I thought that was like a like a fake, like you know, like a comedy thing. Like it wasn't a real thing that happened, but it probably definitely happened. Like in someone's company, I don't for know. Sure. Who like this? This guy was suspended, right? He wasn't even fired. Who gives a shit? Like right, he's but fine. like the the fact that they had to make that sh- a show of it. If it was just like a private embarrassment thing, uh, it would have been like, hey, you know, let's keep this internal because you know we we don't want one of our you know actual like staff writers or whatever to to get this image stuck with them but obviously it must have been bad enough that people were actually like pissed off uh, who were on the call mm. um and I, I was just thinking i would i would defend him if like he 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 said okay goodbye all he thought the camera was off and he was like on his bed uh jerking <laughs> off that's like that's a totally honest mistake um and you know it's like whatever it's it's obviously he should probably say apologized privately but that's not something that's like an aggressive move against the other people but it wasn't was this like a public zoom call or is this like a private internal meeting no i think it was an internal meeting but uh him knowing full well that he was still on the call i think thought the camera was off and the way they said it it made it sound like he was doing it as like you know, kind of how you give a finger to someone behind their back, like you don't intend them to see it, but you're doing it out of like, oh uh, yeah, because like, you, you, you think your video's hidden, but you know they're still doing their fucking like you know staff staff meeting or whatever. Yeah, the, and you're like, yeah, like, I'm gonna jerk off during this stupid boring meeting. That, yeah, something like that, or okay. maybe somebody he didn't like was talking, so he was like, you know, yeah, suck on this, you know, that I kind see. of thing. Is that what it sounded like? Was it, was, it, was it positioned as like a sexual harassment thing, like like Louis C.K. flashing? Whatever, I think so. Or? I'm sure there were women oh. on that call, which is probably one of the reasons he had to, you know, right. take. Uh, again, this is not going to affect him uh, at all, which is why it was so telling that these blue checks were so in def- defending him. Like already, people have forgotten. Do but, you think more than one person was like, I'm going to read some articles written by this guy, The New Yorker, because I want to know who, what, <laughs> like, what his deal is. Right, right. Um, and it, it just reminded me of the whole like, Gio Tolentino thing. Obviously, this is much, much better than that in terms of his offense. Uh, because, you know, whatever, like jerked off, whatever. But just, just the way they, they defend someone in their own class from, from anything, uh, is, it just reminded me of that. But as I said, already old news. Nothing's going to happen to him. He'll be back in a week or whatever. So not too much <laughs> yeah. uh, to talk about. 
Uh, some some uh, controversy over at Vogue. Uh, apparently, people have now realized that the September black issue of Vogue was was kind of not enough. Maybe you know, uh, Anna Wintour might still be uh, a racist bitch or whatever. So. <laughs> Uh, see, something I like can't this, I believe e- that anyone's surprised by this. Exactly. See, I don't even know who to side here because obviously, I've, I, you know, I, I really don't care uh, about Anna Wintour. But also nobody reads like- Vogue anymore. Like, exactly. does anyone has anyone bought the September issue in like a decade? Is that a big issue? Like, what's is that like? The, the- September issue is always their biggest issue of uh, the whole year. So it's okay. like a Sports like- Illustrated swimsuit issue or something. I, I mean, not, not like not like no, literally, not, but it not. is like the famous uh, issue that comes out every year. Yeah, September is always their thickest one. Like on newsstands back in like the '90s, you know, when when I was little and my mom would buy it, it would be like the size of a phone book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't I haven't even cared or thought about the September issue in like more than a decade because I haven't read like sadly I haven't read a print magazine in a while. So what's the problem here? Like the problem is that they they did some big like BLM related issue in September. I think so. Purporting to be like, you know, anti-racist. And then she says something. I couldn't even find what word. I'm sure it's like the N word or something really terrible, but I couldn't even find what word, you know, uh, she no, said. No, I don't think it's like one thing she did. I think it was people. Years, uh, it's like decades, decades that- of her, um, the, the environment that she has cultivated. Cause you know, she's like, Okay, it's like the Bon Appetit She's thing, like the end-all, be-all. Yeah, kind of. I think that Condé Nast actually does own Bon Appetit. But, okay. you know, Anna Wintour at Condé Nast, it's like she is like she is the head of everything. Yeah. Liza, right. you had a tweet about Condé Nast standing for condescending and nasty. <laughs> that was a good tweet. Also, it's just like such a Dickensian name. I like, didn't Condé make Nast. it up. It was How actually could- a reference to um, that Toby Young novel about his experience working at Vanity Fair, how to lose friends and alienate people. Oh, yeah. But uh, what a name like Condé Nast? Like, the place didn't even have a shot from the get-go. Like, how, how can you have a name like that and, and be a good place to work it's at? Person's it's a person's name. Yeah. I think the founder's name or something like that. But oh, no, That's even worse. Someone anyway. had to live with that name. Yeah. They, they, don't want, they don't want to die. Like, this, this magazine, I understand people are not really big into magazines and stuff anymore, and maybe in particular Vogue, but, like, they, they refuse to die because, like, I think fashion refuses to die in the sense that they have so much kind of claim to culture and status, right? Like it's, it's just hard to imagine it going away. So she won't be fired for this. Like she'll be fine probably. Yeah. Cause like, as I said, I, I don't know who to side with this because as I said, one, one thing like fuck Vogue, but on the other hand, as Liza said, like who cares about this magazine? Therefore, the only people who really care about this are probably people just as bad as Anna Wintour in terms of oh, yeah, elitism, yeah. um, racism. Maybe they have their own brand of racism against some some other group. Uh, just probably just just a terrible behavior towards other people anyway. But they happen to be minorities, so they just want like a black or brown or yellow Anna Wintour. It's like why the hell is that a cause that anybody should get behind? You know, I was like we all have so much things that we need to devote our energy to. I really don't care about, you know, who's ahead of Vogue. Let it all burn down, right? <laughs> so that was my that was my It's not like there it. wasn't a movie about Anna Wintour where they yeah, call her that, the that, devil. Right. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that made her more relevant for like another because I mean I love that movie. I think it's a great movie. And I think it just made her way more relatable because Meryl Streep plays her so well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think extended her, her relevance for probably another decade. So no surprises all around. <laughs> yeah, no surprises. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I think we've uh, chatted enough about 
just like stuff that's happened uh, how should we dive into the trial of the chicago seven yeah let's okay. let's get into it um mm-hmm. you know this when we talked about doing this episode a while ago we always talked about doing um an episode on positive portrayals of mass uprisings in film, partially because there's so few to choose from. Like there's so few, it's unbelievable. And even less when you're looking at American movies. Um, you know my stance. I, I'm i not necessarily turned off by a movie's politics. I will watch and enjoy movies with absolutely horrible messages. Let's take um, Top Gun, for instance. The movie is a glossy, GQ editorial looking, uh, it's very sexy portrayal of the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. And the movie ends with the U.S. going to war with Russia and being very gleeful and like triumphant about it. Like, yes, we did it. Like, this is what we wanted the whole time. <laughs> so we've been preparing for. And is it a good movie? It's a fucking great movie. But it has yeah. the worst possible politics you can imagine. Let's straight pro-imperialism you know yeah. in a way it worked too well because uh there's like that famous story about after the movie came a lot of people wanted to sign up for the top gun program yeah more yeah. people <laughs> more people enlisted in the military after top gun than they did after pearl harbor or something oh, oh mm-hmm. really yeah and then mm-hmm. a lot of people wanted to join the air force and, and enroll in the top gun program but maybe, it doesn't exist maybe uh or yeah, uh, and then and then I guess the Navy had to tell me, oh, sorry, that doesn't really exist. But uh, you you want to uh, be crammed into a submarine for like uh, twelve <laughs> months out of the year and risk dying a lonely death if anything goes wrong, huh? Huh? Can we sell you on that? Uh, it, it's still refreshing to see leftist revolutionary movements portrayed positively in modern sim- cinema. So like, Lahaine is probably uh, the example that I would go to, like forever you know that movie came out in 96 and um and now the trial of the chicago seven which doesn't go as far lefty as lahane does but i think it still does a, a pretty good job yeah just contrast the the trial of the chicago seven with say like forrest gump uh and how it treats like the <laughs> anti-war uh, movement in vietnam like forrest gump where you know the, the you know the lead hippie woman dies of aids and remember the wesley her her boyfriend the, the white Black uh-huh, Panther uh-huh. or something who yeah. beats her, yeah. So it, it just portrays the the protesters yeah, so negatively. And then there was like who I assume is supposed to be the Abby Hoffman inspired character when Forrest Gump goes up on the stage in DC. Yeah, he has the same uh, American and he just flag keeps jacket. Saying, yeah. yeah, he just keeps saying the f word like over and over and over again. Yeah, and mm. they just all look so dirty and like I don't yeah. know. They just that, that was my question when I like when you said that they don't like these kind of leftist protest movies don't you don't see them a lot. Is it because they don't get made a lot or is it that when they are portrayed, like when protests are portrayed, historically they're portrayed as being the, you know, the antagonist, the bad guy, the people. Yeah, I don't think it's a mistake. I I think that, I think that they're historically portrayed as the bad guy. Um, I don't think it's always the director's fault either, to be honest. I'd say that most directors, especially the ones that came up like post-Vietnam or like Mm -hmm. during the Watergate era, I feel like they are pretty lefty. But the CIA has spent like hundreds of millions of dollars on controlling the narrative by making sure that they get final approval on any script. Like um, Black Hawk Down from 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know, one of the there, characters, yeah. one of the soldiers was later found guilty of being a child rapist. And Ridley Scott actually had that in the movie 
But the CIA came in and they took the whole thing out and made sure that only positive portrayals of the soldiers made it onto the screen. But but that was a movie where they use a ton of like I guess equipment and you know stuff from the military, right? And you yeah, t- so I think if you, you want to use their previous, equipment, then yeah, they ha- definitely have to have they get sign off. But, but what I mean, about, what about I, okay, just preventing so, movies from being made at all? Like, can they? Yeah, just- I mean, so the CIA has like the, you know they're funding all kinds of projects that have nothing to do with the military, like um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off by John yeah. Hughes. That is also DOD funded because like the Cold War is also a cultural war. So like you know Ferris Bueller, he, he's very like. He's very casual and he's very um, spontaneous and he's fun and like I guess the I guess what they're trying to get across is like Soviets they're not fun you know it's like if you are trying to be spontaneous or casual or just speak your mind in any way it's like to the gulag for you yeah obviously they've not watched Chebarashka very fun but uh, let's get let's uh, speaking of the trial of the Chicago summer uh, what do you guys think of the movie uh, the very basic question as entertainment I enjoyed it very much well I'll yeah, say so this like uh, the last episode we talked about how uh, we talked about election movies and I was like I've never like really cared for the genre of like political movies I've never cared for the genre of like courthouse is that a genre like Movies that oh, yeah, basically yeah. Courtroom dramas. Courtroom, courtroom dramas. dramas. Like, I never get, yeah. I don't think I've ever sat through one, but this one I, I really, really enjoyed. Um, but also, like, my politics have completely, like, flip-flopped since, you know, the, the olden days, right? So, so it was, it was very, um, it felt very relevant. I don't know if this movie was made intentional. Like, did they make this during COVID? Because it felt like it was almost a response to BLM. No, they couldn't have done it during COVID. It would have been impossible. Yeah, there uh, were huge I, crowds I, and stuff in some of the shots, right? Yeah. And So the timing worked out very well for them. It did. On a tangent, Eliza, you're talking about DOD funding. It, uh, speaking of courtroom thrillers in general, I wonder how much of that is funded by the American Bar Association because it makes mm. lawyers look really cool, even though most lawyers <laughs> will never see the inside of a courtroom. So uh, I think we should follow that trail uh, as well. Uh, probably. I mean, Aaron Sorkin, what, what is his other what is his other most famous um screenplays that he's written he wrote a few good men also yeah, a like a lot drama. of famous courtroom drama yeah mm-hmm. i've seen social network i've seen Moneyball. i've seen Molly's social network's Game. also kind of a legal thriller it's got some legal mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's not the courthouse right but they have some he's quite very a few obsessed scenes. with the procedural isn't he mm-hmm. yeah because like political wonks will often come from law or just have a net have like the same skill set uh, as what makes a good lawyer, you know, attention to detail and yeah. and that kind of like love of I think intellectual. He also boxing. did Steve Jobs, which is oh yeah, a that pre- one I have a- not seen yet. That one I haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. But I also really like this movie. And I'm talking about and- the Michael Fassbender version, not the Ashton Kutcher version. <laughs> oh yeah, nobody, nobody even cares about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I actually really like this movie as entertainment. Um, <clears throat> I didn't really know what to think of it going in. So I yeah I I enjoyed it a lot uh, was you know as as a, as a movie uh, one thing that did immediately make me suspicious though was the casting of Richard Schultz the lead prosecutor because he was cast by Joseph Gordon Levitt mm-hmm. and Joseph Gordon Levitt is probably one of the most uh, liked actors in Hollywood yeah he I also seemed like Edward the, Snowden that's right the, the right fir- so the first the thing Oliver I noted when when he showed up I was like wait. He's about to become like the the you know the bad guy like the prosecutor right? Has he ever mm-hmm. played a bad guy like Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a movie? Mm-hmm. 
No. I, I guess Don John, you might say he's kind of a sleazebag in he's that. He's a sleazebag, but, but he's definitely a protagonist yeah, who's redeemed yeah, at the he's, end. He's, you don't hate thing, him, right? yeah. Yeah, in the same way he's redeemed at the end and throughout the movie. Even even he, he hesitates in the first scene. When he's exactly, exactly. That, that immediately uh, rang off like certain bells in my mm-hmm. head. After the movie, I looked him up. There's actually an interview he gave to the Chicago Tribune where he explicitly says, yeah, I never stood up at the end. Um and and all that stuff about me having doubts about the case totally all oh, the actual lawyer Richard Sch- uh, yeah he's still alive oh. he's like ancient but he's still alive so I mean I that like, okay. doesn't bother me though okay. to take artistic liberties in a movie because it's like this isn't a documentary right but yeah. it's it, a drama it, it shows it tips uh, his hand right because uh it, it is very sympathetic to the to the Chicago Seven mm-hmm. uh, but he cannot do that without saying hey you know what. Except for the crazy uh, evil judge, who I thought was great, uh, Frank Langella, who plays him. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I recognize mm-hmm. that actor and his cadence. Where have I seen him? He's Nixon and Frost Nixon. That's mm-hmm. the that's the thing I saw him. He's he's really good as the villain. Uh, just like I was just watching that movie, I was like someone please punch this judge in the face. <laughs> um, until the end. Okay, can we talk about the ending? Where um, uh, can we can we go through a bunch of it first? Sure. Okay. Can we go through? So, a, I have so a, that um, that uh, I think what is a criticism I would have. That the, the Richard Schultz character is uh, transformed as, as like a positive thing uh, in like so that the movie fits uh, Aaron Sorkin's likes. I don't understand. Like, is it is it that like did you I don't know did people like analyze the actual uh, transcripts from the trial and said like Richard Schultz was actually a hard ass the whole time? Like, I don't. Well, no, he, he explicitly said in that interview that he that the portrayal of him as this, uh, you know, kind of somewhat sympathetic uh to the chicago seven guy who then was trying to do his job but in the end okay. essentially it was, it, lined himself mm-hmm. with that was total fiction yeah okay it wasn't just about standing up at the end it was like the whole thing he was like i was pretty dead set on putting these guys in prison yeah okay mm-hmm. i mean you already know i'm a big fan of aaron sorkin anyway i don't think that there is a uh, i don't think there's another screenwriter out there besides him and quentin tarantino that have mastered the art of conversation in films uh, certainly stylized conversation. No, nobody mm-hmm. talk, Nobody's that articulate in real life. Although no, I, wouldn't I that found- be a great world to live in if everybody, <laughs> like if all your work meetings or like your team meetings or your get-togethers with friends, like everybody was that quick and witty? Yeah, although um, although they're, that could get tiring as well when be, everybody's be, so witty. It'd be cool if I was that quick and witty and no one else was. But- <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. There's a, there's a great line from um, The Importance of Being Earnest by, uh, what's his name? <laughs> Oscar Wilde, yeah, just some guy named Oscar Wilde, where one of the characters is like, "Oh, everyone's so witty these days. I'm so bored of them." Uh, which <laughs> I think it would happen if we lived in an Aaron Sorkin world. But I found this very funny tweet where somebody there a lot of the lines, like a lot of the really good lines from the movie, were actually recycled from all his previous works. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Which I guess you'd have to be a huge fan of in order to even notice because he's done so much. But he certainly has his like go-to licks or something. That what's that, an example? Uh, is there an example? Uh, the positive, uh, the uh, possessive pronouns that exchange between oh, oh, really? uh, I don't Eddie think that Redmayne. Was even, I don't think that I, that was even on there. But where where was that from? No, I mean like that's just very typical of Aaron oh, okay. Sorkin to have like like grammar drama. It's like drama. Sorkinese, you know, like he has yeah. like his own vernacular kind of. Oh, one of the specific examples is when there's that fight between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, where Hayden mm-hmm. says, "You know, my problem with you is that in 50 years, uh, you know." when people think of progressive politics, they're going to think of you. That's from the newsroom in exchange between the Sam Waterston and uh, the Jeff Daniels character. Yeah, his he also does a ton of, um, in his dialogue, it's just loaded with references. So 
they're exciting for pop culture junkies like me. I think that there are certain actors that have been cast in um, Aaron Sorkin written movies that do they they um they act his dialogue very well like better than others and i would say that like jesse eisenberg in social network was really really good at sorkin's dialogue mm-hmm. the delivery like, like the cadence the yeah delivery the it just like, the neuroses also yeah. oh yeah for sure eisenberg is very good at that for sure um i would say that like tom cruise in a few good men was good at it and i'd say that in this movie sasha baron cohen Mm. does Sorkinese very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about him, because Liza, you said that uh, y- you think he'll win an Oscar for this? Uh, he's going to be nominated for... They're probably going to put him up as Best Supporting. Right, because that's what it felt like to me, because I thought you said he was going to be for Best Actor, but it, it seemed... I, I don't know, who would even be the Best it, it's Actor be- if anyone was nominated for this? It's much of an ensemble cast. Right. Yeah, it is ensemble. It feels like it's between him and, and Redmayne are the two right, top yeah. build, but mm-hmm. like, there's quite a bit of contribution from everybody else, too, so yeah. hard to say. I mean, those are the two that... That's where all the conflict is uh, in a group dynamic. It's between those two men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you said you told us uh, about this whole Oscar run thing before I watched the movie, and when I watched it, I was kind of like maybe extra scrutinizing uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's acting. I thought he was all right. I didn't think he was super duper great in this movie, mm-hmm. um, but it did. It he was good enough that it made me think about how I love it when um, comedic actors or comedians play like a really good dramatic role, right? Yeah, like um, uh, Jim Carrey in Eternal Sunshine Eternal or Sunshine, Adam Sandler ex- when yes. he did Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about Adam Sandler in, um, what's that recent one? Uncut Gems, more recently. Mm-hmm. Uncut yeah. Gems, yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, what's his face in uh, Stranger Than Fiction? Uh, was oh, Will, Will Ferrell? Uh, Will Ferrell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 so, so Cohen's really good here. And, and didn't he do like a, a Israeli like military TV show or something like that re- recently? I want to see that now because of his uh, performance here. But anyway. Wait, you mean he went to Israel and did a TV show there? Or is a TV show about like another one of his like Ali G characters? No, it's it's a serious like drama where he plays a serious role. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, but anyway, he, he yeah he was he was good here. I, I just didn't think he would like necessarily Oscar worthy, but that's that's my take. Yeah, un- until he's put on the stand, I didn't think he had like a particular standout scene where it was like him doing his own thing. Like, he has his like uh, exchange with Hayden, and then he has like his little stand up bits, but that seems more like expository thing. So I I think you know if, if for like the Oscar bait stuff, it seemed like the the st- when he's put on the stand is the scene that was is supposed to It'll showcase probably him. be the clip that they play mm-hmm. yeah, when they like announces yeah. the nomination. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I th- I think that like well, so all the most entertaining zingers they go to Sasha Baron Cohen. Like that's he is like he he has the best. I think he has the best lines in the movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's probably he, the, he was the ex- most extremely well cast for that role too. Like the zany hippie. Like he was a perfect mm-hmm. casting for that uh, mm-hmm. that character. Yeah, when, so like just thinking about the fact that Aaron Sorkin is probably going to be, I don't know anyone else that could, but Aaron Sorkin will most likely be nominated for best screenplay for this movie. And I would say that like just listening to his dialogue compared to so many of the other movies that I watched, he and Tarantino are the only ones whose characters have actual conversations like there's a nice rhythm to everything since they're they're usually dialogue driven movies. 
And like, I would say that there's like poetry in the way that Sorkin writes his dialogue, you know, like you have to read poetry over and over again, and it can be interpreted so many different ways. And I think that the opening scene of Social Network has been noted for this mm-hmm. when Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Rooney Mara are sitting in the bar, that mm-hmm. long conversation about the final clubs. Yeah, there's probably been like a bajillion YouTube breakdowns of that of that conversation, right? right? Well, there's yeah. payoff in the end that leaves you with some kind of like profound feeling or reflections. And I think that Sorkin's movies will leave you with that. Like there's so much humanity and complexity and they always leave you pondering afterwards. So his movies are some of the few movies where I actually wish that the movie was longer. Like you said, you watch this thing like three, t- four times in a row. Yeah. So with with Chicago Seven, I, wa- I finished the movie and then I went right back to the beginning and I watched it again. And then I woke up the very next morning and I watched it again. Like I Damn. relate to a lot of his characters, not because I'm witty and articulate. Like, ugh, come on now. Yes, you but are. It's, it's more. <laughs> It's more like I don't know when to shut up, like a lot of his characters. <laughs> uh, that's good. So oh, like I, I really relate to that. But uh, Chris, you were talking about Abby Hoffman's final monologue in the movie where he takes the stand. And I think that that's the part where it gives his whole persona a more palatable liberal shift. Right, right. Um, explain, can you I, explain that? Like that it's, it's that line about how the institution's of this country are good, but the people running them are bad. And it's like, Abby Hoffman would never say something right. like that. Right, that sounded like uh, <laughs> he would never. He was, yeah, he, to the, you know, till the end of his life, um, he stayed, you know, very anti-government all the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it definitely makes him, yeah, as you said, more palatable. I don't care that much about accuracy in movies, like even historical dramas, so I'm not that bothered by that one line. I think that this general idea still gets across, like protesters good, government corrupt, trials can be political. And, you know, like not only are trials political and the government's corrupt, I think that this movie takes it a step further. The government is vindictive, too. Sure. But I think also the movie says like the the Nixon administration was vindictive, mm-hmm. and it precisely because of that uh, Sasha Baron Cohen line about institutions being run by terrible people. The implication is, uh, you know, whoever came after you can after, vote yourself out of this mess, <laughs> right? Um, and can we can we now go to the ending? Yes. Or is it okay? So the so, ending, <laughs> yeah, uh, is so Tom Hayden is is allowed to give the the final remarks. Mm-hmm. Because the judge, the evil Judge Hoffman, uh, says he thinks Hayden's been like the the best, most contrite member of the seven, mm-hmm. and he's and he like uh, he just openly tells him, bribe, tries to bribe him, saying, "Oh, if you keep it short and sweet, and basically grovel at my feet, I might give you a lighter sentence." I don't know if he meant him individually or or the group. I think individually, he meant the group, but definitely sure. individually, right? Because oh, really? they're, okay. they're always trying to split the group up, right? But anyway. sure, okay. So then, uh, you know, uh, Eddie Redmayne has like you know his like moment of crisis and then he ends it by uh reading out all the names of the killed yeah, the uh, six, soldiers 5, american soldiers or whatever yeah. in vietnam and it's like this rousing moment i was like when that music came on though i was just like come on this is this is too much <laughs> and, it and reminded- there, was, there was build up to it because his buddy was like writing the list like in three different scenes throughout the movie so you yeah, knew so something was going to happen with uh-huh. that yeah yeah. So you thought that it made too triumphant a scene that was actually like um, 
a, like an unhappy ending for the group itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I just have a couple of things. Uh, for some reason, I thought that the guy who played McLovin, like Christopher Mintz Plus, was in this movie. I thought he was playing Rennie because they kind of look alike, right? <laughs> but it's not. They, it, it, so I was like, oh, hey, McLovin's like acting again and he's in this movie. But it turns out I was wrong. Yeah, it, like the ending reminded me way too much of the end of Dead Poet Society mm-hmm. where, you know, you have like the triumphant I'm moment. Movie of- I also love... Oh, yeah, I love that Poet Society. And then it reduced the judge who had before been so, like, hateable in in a good way. Like, you really thought this guy uh, had real power. He was reduced to, like, the sputtering headmaster Nolan at the end of uh, that Poet Society where he's, like, trying to tell all the boys, like, get down, you know, you know, get down, Ethan Hawke, you know, mm-hmm. like that. And, and you just see him, like, impotently pounding his gavel saying like order order and he just reduced him to kind of a clown and and the music is just way too much and if they just cut the soundtrack it was just him reading the lines that would have been powerful in its just like simplicity do you know if that actually happened i don't know i don't know if it actually happened i would say that chris like i actually really like the big spectacle and the swelling of the music like i don't really like realism in movies like i think that's the reason why like (laughs) There's this movie called, um, I think it's called like Never, Sometimes, Always, or whatever. Like, Yeah, it's the movie about like the this, abortion, right? Yeah, and I watched it, oh, I really and I was so that. underwhelmed because I was like, oh my God, it's like a road oh. trip movie, but there's no hijinks. Uh-huh. And like, there's no like soundtrack, and there's no laughs, and there's nothing outrageous happens. I'm so bored. This is too real. Oh, I, I love that. That it sounds like exactly. The I get extremely. I, like I think you would actually like it. I, I think that if we did a podcast about it uh, before the Oscars, because it's definitely going to be nominated for something, mm. that be, it, it, it gives the um, it gives a serious topic. Um, it, it it's 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 just very serious, and like realism is not something that I enjoy in movies. Like I'm there for the spectacle. I'm there for like the just the grandy the the grandiose you know but i I think i think they're like it's fine to have a grandiose scene because it is a a big deal you know end of a huge trial but i think what chris is saying and what i kind of agree with is that it was a little bit cringe the way it was put together you know like when i saw it i was like this is a little bit cringy it's a little bit corny i'm okay with it because i assumed it was what happened right yeah but Mm -hmm. none of the uh, articles i read about were like oh yeah that was totally fake uh and it seemed like um by what uh, Richard Schultz said, where he's like, oh yeah, I never stood up when they read the... N- I think he said, like, I never stood up, which implies that they did read yeah, the names. They did names. read that's the right, names that's right. he that's right. Seated, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I just had a problem with the music. I thought it was too much. <laughs> I thought they could have gone for something a little bit more subdued because the, the act, of it, act itself is so powerful that I thought the music took away from it. Like, ooh, look, pay mm-hmm. attention to me too. It's like, no, like the the what, what Hayden's doing, that's that's really powerful. No, oh, I so. want the music. <laughs> I, I well, want the I want taste, the yeah. very I want the very Hollywood ending mm-hmm. because yeah. it's something that would never happen in real life. Like I would I would love I would love a soundtrack to my life and a score, <laughs> like a laugh track or like a you know clapping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She woke up in the morning on time. It's clapping. Yeah. Laugh track. <laughs> which, which composer? Which composer would you want to soundtrack your life? Maybe we can answer mm. it at the end. Let's let's give ourselves a little time okay. to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what I did after the movie was quickly uh, reread the sections of the 1968 election in this book called uh, 1968, The Year That Rocked the World by Mark mm-hmm. uh, Kurlansky. Very, oh, very I read interesting that book, book too. Oh, yeah. Oh, you did. Oh, yeah. Um, some random facts that I, f- I thought were kind of funny. Apparently, the, the, the actual original place they were supposed to have the convention in Chicago burned down. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> like months like by before. Accident? Yeah. And oh, it man. was like this building that everybody hated. It cost like a fortune. And then it burned down. And then they had to go to this place that was much farther away from like I think downtown. Uh whatever. Uh another funny thing. <laughs> so, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, um, as a prank, wanted to nominate a pig as their like parties presidential nominee when oh. they were in chicago okay but then they had to fight over whose pig should get nominated because apparently ruben had this like big ugly pig and um hoffman had this much cuter pig <laughs> 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 and they and it, they ended up going with ruben's pig but Ho- apparently it caused a really big rift between them <laughs> at the time <laughs> wow and um oh this was actually very interesting so a, a lot of people blame daily uh, for not granting the protesters the right to uh, to their own space. Because it's like, you know, the best thing you could have done was probably just let them do it and ignore them. The, you really gave them what they wanted by just being such a, you know, just being so uh-huh. over the top. Uh-huh. Uh, but apparently he wasn't just being a jerk. I mean, he was a jerk, but there's a very particular reason. And it's because had he granted them the right to march down to the, the Hilton or the convention center, whatever route they wanted, they would have actually had to march through a neighborhood called Bridgeport, which is where he grew up. Mm-hmm. So to him, it would have been a personal, like too much of a personal insult to let these dirty hippies march Pass through. through his town, yeah. uh, That's his- one of like the major themes of the movie though, right? Is that so much of politics is based on just these personal grievances. Exactly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, one of the, the key arguments made by the defense is um, that John Mitchell only did this as a way to get back at Ramsey Clark because Ramsey mm-hmm. Clark had bad manners, yeah. Yeah, didn't resign <laughs> in time and, and timed it to embarrass John mm-hmm. Mitchell in front of the, the Senate or whatever. <laughs> a thing that nobody in the public cares about or he probably even knew about except for people in the know. The different dynamics among the Chicago 7, um, they're given plenty of screen time to explore. You mean like the different kind of uh, factions that make up the seven or not? Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, like I think that if, if you were to tie the movie into today, which I think that Aaron Sorkin very much tries to do is like Sasha Baron Cohen's character, Abby Hoffman would be like the dirtbag leftist who, you know, he doesn't really take anything seriously, but he's way smarter than anyone gives him credit for. And then there's Eddie Redmayne's character of Tom Hayden, who's very task-oriented. He wants everyone to take everything seriously. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, and, and like there, like, there's so many different factions on the left. Like I would say that it, Eddie Redmayne's character probably is like representative of like the Democratic left. And then the Sasha Baron yes. Cohen character is just way further on the left, you know? Okay, yeah, this is perfect. I, I wanted to talk about actually like the exchange they had, right, in the in their conspiracy house where um, Eddie Red, Redmayne says like he doesn't want to like kind of fuck up politics with like shenanigans. And mm-hmm. he, he accuses um, Abby Hoffman. He says that like, you know, you, you don't want the war to end. You actually do not. Mm-hmm. The last thing you want is for the war to end. And I thought that was really interesting because like it relates to the whole, like you said, like the kind of battle on the left between like liberal Democrats and mm-hmm. like slightly further left, like dirtbag left folks, because a lot of it is about like the brand. Like he was kind of correct in, in saying that like it is Abby Hoffman's brand to be the resistance guy. Right. In the same way that like, you know, you can you can argue that like um, 
uh, some leftists might even want Trump to Resistance win. Resistance Democrats, yeah. Yeah, well, as a way to like own the libs and make a point about the futility of the status quo in politics, right? It's like their brand to be correct about how, how wrong liberals are. So uh, that was, I, again, like I, I, it felt like there's so much of this movie that like made sense for things happening today. Maybe at least mm-hmm. the things that we, we look at online. Um, that was a scene that, that stuck with me. Um, and, and also like, we didn't talk much about this just yet, but like in both Lahane and this movie, like it's not just about the system, but it's about specifically like shitty cops, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. one thing that, that was one, one piece of archival footage they had in the movie that shocked me was they had these like cars or trucks, the cops had these cars or trucks that had like a, a wall of barbed wire or razor mm-hmm. wire, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, tied to the front of the cars so they could use them like, you know, cattle fences to push back protesters that looks way more vicious than anything we've seen <laughs> from blm's uh yeah. the, the police in, in the blm protests like just in the last half a year right it, it looks absolutely insane and that scene where they like take their name tags off which i understand is a thing that still happens today was 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 kind of staggering um and, and like i maybe this is this is kind of my question at the beginning it's like how do we like are these kinds of movies where the cops are are made to look shit like are they suppressed you know, protest movies like this. Um, I, I, I don't know, but I, I feel like in, in particular, this movie also covered the Vietnam War. And to the point you made earlier, Eliza, like, you know, there's a lot of influence on in Hollywood to, to prevent these kind of like almost not pro-communist, but like anti like American, like war machine kind of movies, right? Yeah. If you read like Oliver Stone's memoir, he talks about how many times he's had to go overseas and get like French funding or like Hong Kong, Beijing funding for his movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or- Philip, you mentioned like, like pro-communist, but I, I think that was what this movie specifically did not touch upon. It, it focused mainly on the anti-war stuff, sort of like the anti-racism stuff, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I think much more agreeable to people now especially with like nobody's supposed to do rock war anymore really everyone just even those who supported it pretend they didn't um (laughs) so that's something i think people can rally behind so that this movie is trying to find like the common areas where people could agree with like an abby hoffman type because again like nobody's supposed to vietnam especially these days uh so yeah yeah what what the the movie just assumes that everybody watching it is you know we got the point, right? right? Yeah, and and actually, I, I thought that the, the the opening scene, you know, where they they're setting context about like, okay, it's about the Vietnam War protests, right? Um, what I noted about that was that, and I, I note these things as a Vietnamese person, is that um, they actually didn't show a lot of massacre porn to set the context mm-hmm. for like the shittiness, mm-hmm. like the terribleness of the Vietnam War, right? They showed actually like a a, 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 a very short shot of like happy Vietnamese people going about their lives in like Ho Chi Minh City or whatever, or Saigon. Mm-hmm. And then they cut mm-hmm. it with like one kind of impersonal overhead shot of like, you know, American napalm going off in the air. Mm-hmm. But they never show like, you know, all the typical scenes of like the the the, the massacres that happened out there or right. that yeah, very, very the, famous his... seat, that photo of that, of that naked girl who got napalmed who's like running napalm screaming. Girl, yeah. They always show that shit, but here they didn't. They're just like, yeah, you guys get the point. Like it's a Vietnam War, we, we all agree it was shit. Here's a couple, you know, shots that are not violent to show, you know, 
what these protesters are up against, and then they moved on. And I, I kind of respected that a little bit. As a classic rock freak that Aaron Sorkin is, I'm surprised he didn't use the stereotypical like Vietnam War music for the opening montage. Yeah, either. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, right. the same like five songs that get recycled. Yeah. <laughs> I know, every I know. All along the Watchtower, or like all along the Watchtower. Um, but know, it's also not a turn, war turn, movie. Turn, turn, turn by so. the birds. Uh, right, you know, it's not know, a war movie. It. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I mean, he makes so Sorkin makes like really obvious connections to today's politics to 1968. Like, um, mm-hmm. just even the language that they use. Like, at one point in the movie, Tom Hayden calls Abby Hoffman's supporters his followers, which I'm pretty sure is not mm. a word that people used back in the pre-social media days. Oh uh, mm-hmm. yeah, possibly. Um, and then he also yeah. emphasizes the police state at the end of the opening montage. And I'm pretty sure that some of the protest signs were probably revised to better tie it to today's uprisings. And like mm-hmm. when they when they yell like no justice, no peace, they really emphasize that one because that is a chant that still is chanted today at every every protest that you go to. Yeah, some of the chants were like akin to like the pigs in a blanket burn them a lot whatever the hell they they use these like it sounds like <laughs> either they haven't changed much or they're definitely referencing the contemporary uh lines they have here yeah i think that what he's really good at doing is that for the past 50 years what he shows is that one we haven't progressed and two mm. we keep getting sidetracked it's like one step forward two steps back yeah yeah you know and it doesn't the movie doesn't give any answers it just asks a lot of questions yeah, I mean, my issue also with the ending is it's very triumphant, but it's like, what about? Because you can even like the ending where you got like the post um, post trial like the uh, epilogue of all the major characters. I think like not- the point of the ending was not to focus on like they all got sentenced, but more to focus on like the resistance goes on, you know? Mm. Right. But okay, so what happens to all of them? Uh, Abby Hoffman writes a famous book, but then commits suicide. He committed suicide becomes- in 89. Yeah, and then Jerry Rubin becomes a stockbroker of all people, and Tom Hayden <laughs> uh, becomes a, like a California Bobby state. Bobby worked for Jerry Rubin too. Wow, really? I did not know that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Tom Hayden goes to like the California state legislature, but it's not like he becomes anything higher than that. And obviously, uh, you know, after Vietnam, it's not like that stopped any wars. Uh, you, you know, Something Iraq interesting to- about the lawyers is that, um, uh, who, what's the name of the character that Michael Keaton plays? Oh, uh, Ramsey Clark. Ramsey mm-hmm. Clark. And then there's another lawyer. Mm, uh, wine glass. Yeah, they actually um, they work with the Philippine movement after the events of the Chicago Seven, oh, and uh, in support of uh, the Communist Party of the Philippines and like Joe Masison. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. So again, with the ending, it, it seemed way too. It was like a happy ending, but it's like it wasn't even really a happy ending for the characters, let alone their ideology, which. Uh, a lot of people would say failed, considering it, it really didn't stop the same things from happening again and again, to the point where, you know, 2020 feels a lot like the same things in 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, so Yeah, my it, interpretation was that their movement stayed alive. Right. But to accomplish what, right? I mean, that, that's my issue. I, I think that's a very pressing concern because it's relevant to us now because we got to learn lessons from what happened there if we want to make you know like a summer of 2020 make sure it wasn't just like a social hashtag movement that people will laugh at which it is also turning into 
Right. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, uh, at least let's try to find out the what happened before and see what happened and then see where they failed, what we can do different. But if you wrap it up too nicely as this was triumphant because he really showed them by reading the names, uh, it just it, it ends in like grand gesturism that doesn't actually affect anything. So that was... That was my well, issue. I know. I, as well. I, maybe they didn't do a good job tying it to the, you know, to the end of the Vietnam War. But like, wasn't the weren't these protests a big part of why the war became extremely unpopular and then eventually ended? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was definitely. I mean, the, the war was like rapidly decreasing in popularity, which is why like Johnson didn't even yeah. seek a, another term. But even if it ended, that war didn't end anything afterwards. Um, so that's that's like the bigger goal, right? Not just to end the already unpopular war, but to try to prevent future war, wars from happening as well to the best of your ability right and somebody pointed out like the the anti-war protests in iraq were like the the most uh biggest global movement against any cause ever and it didn't do anything <laughs> but anyway um maybe maybe that's a little too depressing but <laughs> wait well, let's talk about another depressing thing the movie lahane uh we have time to get into that right yeah lahane all right uh, let's talk about one lahane. of my favorite movies of all time i've been uh oh really since we started this podcast i've been trying to pressure you guys to watch Find a way to shoehorn it I, I fi- in. Yeah, I finally got my way. Why do you right. like why do you like it so much? Uh this is just, you know, we had to watch this movie for film school. Um Okay. I would say that just like Chicago 7, this is a movie that dramatizes social and political realism, which is a uh, if it if that's a genre, like I don't think it is, but like that that kind of movie is something that I really enjoy. Like even with like the slashers I've been watching. Oh yeah. Throughout, um, you know, spooky season, Halloween month. But this, this, so this was um, Vincent Castle's first movie role, and I still think that it's his best. Um, so Lahaine came out in 1996, and also a movie that still feels topical. I think that mm-hmm. I think the two movies that we're discussing today, one takes place in 1968. And the other, Lahaine, was filmed in 96. They are both about police brutality and mass uprising. And I think it shows how little progress has been made, even on a completely different continent. Like each director is responding to events that are unfolding in real time around them. And they're taking place decades apart, uh, two different continents. Um, you know, when Lahaine came out in 96, it was. It was a pretty big international sensation, and it got the best director prize at Cannes. Um, here's something interesting: when this movie opened at Cannes in '96, the police that were working at the festival turned their backs on the actors and the director Matthew Kasovitz mm-hmm. to show their disapproval because they believed that this movie was a piece of anti-police propaganda. And um, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was the head of the French National Front at the time, called for the filmmakers to be put in jail. So I think it says a lot about the impact of this movie and what it had to say, not just in France, but all across the world. Mm-hmm. They, they do, do you want openly, me to, do you want me to do... give up like a little synopsis? Yeah. yeah, just a quick synopsis. Yeah. Okay. So this movie takes place over 24 hours in a multi-ethnic Parisian housing project. And it's kind of like the French version of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. So, you know, uh, when I was in film class in grad school, I actually watched both movies back to back. And you've got the three guys who are best friends. There's the Eastern European Jewish guy, there's the Arab guy, and then there's the African guy. And all three represent a different ideology, even though they all 
together, they resent the system of violence and oppression that they live under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So Vincent Cassell's the the hothead. Um, yes. Hubert, who's the black guy, is is the most uh, pacifist. Right. Even though he's a boxer, uh-huh. which is which is kind of funny. And then uh, the Arab guy, I forgot his name. Said. Said. Said, Said is the yeah. one who has. He's got like family members who are actually in the police. So he, he like, when they get arrested, and stuff, he's able to act as like the liaison. Uh, between them so that's like the shades of uh, right and vince's character is vince so that makes it kind of easy yeah vince Mm -hmm. argues that oppressive violence needs to be met with violence and then hubert says that hate just breeds more hate right Right. Mm -hmm. and and like the inciting incident is uh their friend is is either beaten or shot by the police and they're all waiting to uh, see waiting to see if he survives and and a major plot of the story i mean it's kind of a plotless movie because it's about them just kind of living their day-to-day or hour-to-hour life but the the big question is like vince says that if their friend dies then he's going to take uh revenge on the cops and they found the gun uh which was lost by one of the cops and and uh turns out that uh, i think hubert was the one who found it i found it really mm-hmm. funny that the fact that one gun went missing uh became national news i know it's, just, it's such a contrast I to know. to america just such a guns cultural, guns like, guns gap. everywhere <laughs> philip you asked me at the beginning why i was so into this movie the first time i saw mm-hmm. it i i wanna i was actually thinking about that and i was like um you know, like I think that this might have been the first time that I ever saw a movie that took place in Paris that wasn't all like romantic Amelie. fairy tale Paris. <laughs> or fucking yeah. Emily in Paris, that hot oh my trash. God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Continue, Liza. <laughs> yeah, like I, I think that we, the way Paris is portrayed in cinema, it's like we almost forget that they have poor immigrant neighborhoods and mm-hmm. they have the exact same problems with policing and white nationalism that we do everywhere else. Like yeah. that just shows how powerful propaganda and media can be. Like just the opening of so like the opening of Lahaine is very similar to the opening of Chicago 7. Both movies open with a montage of actual news footage. Um Lahaine uses uh the music um he uses Bob Marley's Burning and Looting. Mhm. Yeah, and the movie is based on an actual incident. There was a French Zairean teenager named uh, Makome Mbowole who was who was uh, shot during an interrogation at a police station. That happened in '93, so that was like a few years before the movie was made. But it is based on a true story. Was it I an mean, accident? Probably not. I mean, if he was like shot at mm. a police station, it's like, oops, my my gun in my holster went off in your face. I'm, I it was probably they were probably like waving it around at him. I mean, there's a I really was wondering disturbing if scene. The, if uh, spoiler, if the ending to this movie. Was a reference, a reference to that? To yeah, that. yeah, that yeah. that seems to be. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert. In the end, some cop is harassing Vince, and uh, he's like waving a gun at his head, being, "Oh yeah, you know, are you scared, motherfucker?" and everything. But it accidentally goes off and and kills him. And it's a very just like jarring scene because because like the last like say twenty to thirty minutes, it's just the friends just kind of bonding as they're trying to get back from Paris to their and Vince to their changes neighborhood. his ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he and, hands and, again over to Hubert. Yeah, yeah. he mm-hmm. hands again to Hubert, and then the ending implies that uh, there's like this. Not quite a Mexican standoff because there's only two of them between Hubert and the police officer, but like there's like you hear like two gunshots, and I think the assumption is both of them killed each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's so it's off a very screen, you know, sad though. movie. You just yeah. see you just see Saeed staring straight yeah, ahead. Yeah, just like helpless. He like you know, so, can't do like, anything. What's your interpretation of that ending? My interpretation was that society pulled the trigger. Yeah, because like Hubert is 
as I said, the, the the one who has the most hope in, you know, hate breeds hate. You have to, you know, love everyone and things like that. But in the end, even he just like loses hope when he sees that mm-hmm. there's like just his friend just gets even his like friend who finally seems to have calmed down a bit, mm-hmm. even after they learn that their friend dies because their friend does end up mm-hmm. dying in the hospital uh, for, for this like cop to just kill him so senselessly, like Uber just snaps and it seems to be the message for the audience. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, and, and Saeed has to witness all of it, right? Like, if you think about the the kind of um, consequence for all three characters, Saeed, Uber, and Vince, they all they are in no control over their fates by the end of it, right? Like, yeah. they get harassed by cops who are just always fucking up, you know, shit in their neighborhood. They get shot. One guy gets shot accidentally and the other guy gets shot, you know, shooting this cop and the third guy has to be traumatized forever seeing his two best friends killed. Um, yeah. Which, which, like, you know... After all they went through, right? This was still the outcome. Like it, it, it feels very hopeless. Uh, <laughs> much yeah. like how we we came to the conclusion with the with Chicago Seven. Um, the opening and closing line of the movie is the same thing. It's a, uh, um, uh, you know, it's it's about a society that's on its way down and how some people are going to fare better than others. But it's mm-hmm. also a commentary on how without real material change, we're doomed to repeat the same cycle of police brutality and oppression that's seen in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting companion piece to this, I think, would be Kasovitz's first movie, a movie called Café Olay, which came out just like two or three years before this. Now, Café Olay is, is a romantic comedy of sorts. It actually stars both um, the actor who played Hubert and then Vincent Cassell. Oh, yeah. And then um, the plot of this movie is that the, there are two guys, one played by Kasovitz himself and Hubert. They're both in love with the same woman who happens to get pregnant. And it's the two men. And she won't tell like whose it is. I, I don't think she even really knows. So both guys uh, are trying to figure out how to... Uh, both you know try to be the one who takes care of her but do they have to work together etc and i noticed that it's uh the the woman's played by the woman in the art gallery in lahain remember the one that saeed uh, really likes yeah and tries to like hit on in, in the mm-hmm. art gallery that's the woman who plays her mm-hmm. and and the the movie is uh trying to send this i think very kind of multiracial happy message because like Kasovitz is white uh Uber, the actor plays him as black and the woman is like biracial so in the end uh you know it's kind of unrealistic because uh, they all end up kind of getting along and the, the kid turns out to be matthew Kasovitz's, is but Uber's is totally cool with being uh just an equal like partner in their little threesome i guess and and the movie i think ends with like a message from uh, jean-marie le pen and the movie is, is all like a fuck le pen and his like a french white nationalist <laughs> message mm-hmm. um and it's like he believes in this so much that he thinks like two guys of different races can uh agree to be i guess co-fathers and co-husbands to a woman of a different race as well um and, and throughout the movie you got uh, Kasovitz and the Hubert guy trading uh, open racial insults at each other but in the end they all make up and you contrast that with a movie as bleak as Lahaine I thought in just which was made just a few years later it's very interesting sounds much nicer mm-hmm. Cafe Ole. sounds way <laughs> way nicer <laughs> it's on Criterion Channel as well Philip so you can watch that as yeah. well uh, yeah, Le Pen gets a uh, Le Pen. Casavis really doesn't like Le Pen, eh? Like I, <laughs> yeah, he must have been such a dominant, uh, f- kind of like what what Trump is to us now. Like everything, if you were like, if you had like a political opinion, everything probably hinged on what you thought of Le Pen, 
And remember mm-hmm. when France won the World Cup in 98? Um, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So like a big deal, and it continues to be a big deal, is that most of France's uh, players are black. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Even if they're like actually born in France. Like a lot of them are actually like born in like Senegal or, or whatever, but, you know, they play for France. And the fact that they won, their captain was Zinedine Zidane, who's an ethnic Algerian uh and uh, most of their players are black and they, they saw this as a triumph of like uh, the ability of all races to come together to achieve this magnificent goal obviously that didn't solve anything and then in like the mid 2000s there were a whole bunch of other riots in france so this these movies seem to be part of that whole like that you know the french trying to ask themselves like can we be a multiracial society can can we all get along mm-hmm and one is much more optimistic than the other. Yeah. Uh, uh, interesting. I mean, like Le Pen referenced in the movie and the actual politician at the time, he is the father of Marie Le Pen, right? Who? Yeah, yeah. Who that's is, right. Uh, who is, um, who did like better than expected the, the last French election. That's right. That's right. Macron but, but isn't that just like yeah. a, isn't that, isn't that continuation it just in the, in like real meat space, like political uh, activity in France, just a indication that like this, that this this hatred has not that this problem has not been resolved right yeah, I mean, just like a few literally ago, there's like a there's like a you know there's a like like a dynasty of fucking racist politicians still you know do, having some success in the country yeah and just last week there was that that uh like islamic extremists who beheaded the teacher yeah. then like a day or two later these like two white women beat up some like arab woman near the eiffel tower and, yeah and just like, you know this shit yeah so in some sense the message from lahaim was pretty accurate <laughs> Like it's it's just gonna keep going on and on until there is some much much more massive systemic change which uh, the country has not seen yet. It was much more accurate than Cafe Olay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which one came first, Cafe Olay? Cafe Olay came Cafe first. Olay. That was Matthew okay. Kasovitz's first movie. Okay. Yeah, he became increasingly jaded, I suppose, over time. <laughs> in just in just two three years, he he changed or something. Yeah. Uh, Lahine was also the uh, inspiration for Justin Chan's Gook. Uh, which is how I first heard of it. Oh, and I didn't know that. Makes that's sense why there. I first I saw it like a few that. years ago. Yeah. Yeah, LA riots, right? I yeah, did that. not know that. And I even interviewed Justin Sean for a, <laughs> about Gook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Any more thoughts? Uh, I mean, I think one last thing I'll say about Lahane is that I, I really enjoyed it. I haven't seen a movie like that in a while because maybe because I, now that I have the Criterion Collection, I can watch, you know, cool shit like this more often. Mm-hmm. It's It's... Um, I really, I think one thing you were saying about Eliza, about like why it resonated with you, um, the whole idea of like tr- a window into the world of disenfranchised people, mm-hmm. right? In this case, disenfranchised Parisian youth. That that was very interesting. Like that that genre, I think it is a genre. It's interesting to be. It actually made me think a bit about uh, Burning, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> to bring it back full circle to Stephen Yoon, because because that movie, you know, the the kind of um, milieu and the the environment that produced um that not not just that movie but what's going on right now in south korea with like a lot of unemployed youth is is a real thing it also makes me think of like spain's famously high youth unemployment rate um you know you know there's crazy stories that come out of environments like that right yeah um so i know it's it's interesting to 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 be able to see that captured in a great film um and also just like very visually stunning the cinematographer direct directing um all that was great in uh, lahane so definitely want to watch more movies like this yeah so um the way that he mm-hmm. shoots it is so interesting to me in the first half of the movie Kasovitz mm. uses short lenses when they're in the housing project 
like short lenses, long takes yeah. to show how comfortable the characters are when they're in their own environment. And then mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. contrast, the second half of the movie that, when they take the train into Paris, really interesting he switches over to longer lenses to make them feel like fish out of water. It's like two different worlds. <laughs> that counts. That counts. Uh, I remember that from <laughs> film class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Philip, you brought up the youth unemployment rate, and we we always think of it as like some weird thing of in other uh, continents. So I just quickly looked up youth unemployment United States. Um, it hit a peak of almost thirty percent in April of this year. Wow, that's like Spain level bad, you know, and and it's probably worse than Spain, like proportionally. This is a, this uh, is a big. I mean, it's a big deal. This is the shit that causes like the alt right, right? To, this is the to stuff that up, you right? never that hear about like, in the news and on the internet. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we, we were talking before we started recording about. Uh, watching white noise maybe we should get into that like there's a lot of connections yeah yeah, of course yeah okay i think that about wraps it up so thanks for listening listeners (laughs) and oh we have a special halloween episode which will come out uh just a few days Mm -hmm. after this and so stay tuned for that uh we'll probably talk about some like scary movies we like my favorite time of the year yeah (laughs) so until then catch you next time bye everyone bye (laughs)